Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Hey, we are celebrating our 30-year anniversary here at Olive Branch over this next year. We started talking about that last week as we've been moved into this series called uh, Greater Than. And what we're looking at is our past for a little bit. Last week we did that in order to examine our present situation and, and examine our future, where God has us for 2019 and 20. And really the belief and the call is that we would see our future to be greater than our past. I've had an awesome past. In fact, I was just talking to our founding pastor yesterday, and he was talking about that very fact. Just like, hey, we've had an awesome history in the church. Let's have a greater future. And I just was saying amen to that. And I'm excited about that idea, especially when we consider that there are 200,000 plus people that surround us every day that don't don the door of a church on a Sunday or aren't in presence of the gospel to have an opportunity to receive the message that Jesus Christ has given. Now, that being said, 200,000 people is a daunting figure. It's a, it's a large large number, and you kind of feel a little overwhelmed. And I think that's a good place to start, because I think that's kind of where Jesus started his disciples. If you think about it, and you, and you look at the, and you look at the records that we have of Jesus' life, and we look at particularly one record made by Dr. Luke, we call it the Book of Acts. As he's recording church history, he starts with this uh, scene in which Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives in front of all of his disciples, about 150 of them. And as they're listening to him, he begins to lay the vision of what is going to happen. Now, I want you to stop and imagine you're there. Imagine you would be one of those people. You're in a, on, a, on a side of a hill. It's a, it's a hill called Mount of Olives. There's a bunch of olive trees probably surrounding you. You could turn around, look out, and you would have seen Jerusalem spread out at your feet because it's overlooking the city. And as Jesus is speaking, you're looking at like, oh my gosh, this guy's just been resurrected. I mean, you have had seen his miracles of healing. You've seen him cast out demons. You've heard his preaching. You've known, you've known how controversial he is. You watched him be crucified. Then you saw him resurrected. Now we're sitting there. We're bated breath, listening to what Jesus is about to say. And then he unloads this sentence on us. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Now that means you're going to be the ones who testify. You're going to acknowledge to the world and tell the story of what I have done as eyewitnesses. Here's, you're going to go out and share the story of Jesus with people in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is where the Sanhedrin was. Jesus didn't set him up to go into the easy spot and go, okay, go on home to Galilee, and you can start up there way far away from those people who killed me. No, no, you're going to go back into Jerusalem. I think it's important because Jerusalem's the one place they could have gone and found Jesus' body, pulled it out, and thrown it on the ground and said, this isn't true. But they couldn't do that because Christ was risen. So they go into Jerusalem, but then they're supposed to move from there out to Judea, which is the surrounding kind of like county or region or state that they, that they would have lived in. And then it was supposed to go to the state next door called Samaria. And right there, our jaws would have been like, what? Because if you were Jewish, you hated the Samaritans. There was some deep-seated racism going on there. They hated one another. They couldn't stand each other. They considered each other religious, um, religious hacks and, and, and fakes. And so there was some deep-seated anger between those two. And yet Jesus says, no, we're going to push all that aside. You're going to go to Samaria. And then you're going to go beyond Samaria. You're going to go to the end of the earth. 200,000 versus the end of the earth. Who, who, who has the greater mission here, right? And you start thinking about the fact that they were called to send this message, not just to their city, not just to their state, not to their region, but actually to the whole world. Now, this is a group of men and women who literally would have stayed within their city or within their small little nation of Israel their entire life. 
If they'd ever gone anywhere, they'd only gone to a local nearby town, or perhaps they'd gone to Jerusalem, and that was about it. They hadn't probably explored Rome. They had never seen an airplane. There's no exploration of a map. They wouldn't have been able to whip out what we have as a globe. None of that existed. The mindset of what is out there at the ends of the earth would have been frightening. It's massive. It's huge. They would have heard of India. They would have known about the concept of China. They would have known the edge and the ocean out there by Hispania. They would have understood, oh yeah, there's this interior of Africa that's gigantic, but somewhere down below the sands of Egypt, we have no idea what's down there. There is this is expansive humanity. And Jesus is like, you're going to take that to the ends of the earth. Now, not overwhelmed, these, these men actually began to get to work. And these women actually began to preach and teach and lead and move forward. And so by the end of the first generation, this is a picture of uh, basically the Mediterranean area. And the Rome, you see Spain, and you see England and the United Kingdom, all that stuff here. And the gospel began there in Jerusalem, kind of over here in this little spot right there. And as you're looking at it, it begins to expand from there up north down into that Asia and Galatia and across to the to Greece and into Italy and, and so on. By the end of their lifetime, I believe it spread even further than this, um, than this scholastic kind of map here. And the reason why is we know that there was an Ethiopian who received the gospel and took it home. That would be way down south, further down below Egypt. We know that there were Arabians who were Jewish men and women who had received Christ at Pentecost and would have taken it into the Arabian Peninsula. We know there were Parthians at at Pentecost who heard the gospel and probably taken it out into the Parthian Empire, which was the second largest empire at the time. It was the next door neighbor of Rome, and they were constantly fighting. There was some intense situation here that we know Bartholomew, the the apostle, was crucified, gutted, and uh, killed in Armenia because he converted the king. There is so much legend out there about how far it spread that even today, many of the churches in India claim that Thomas was their founder from the first century. These men didn't just simply add a few people to their church. They didn't just simply add a little bit into Jerusalem. See, they began to actually literally go to the ends of the earth. How did they do that? How did in one generation, 150 people, roughly about half of the size of this room, how would we have gone to go into the whole world and bring a message that by the, third, the end of the 3rd century, the beginning of the 4th century, around that 300, 350 AD marker, all of Rome was considered Christian? How does it move that quickly and spread that fast? It doesn't happen through simple addition. It doesn't happen by just adding a few people to a church here and there. It happens through multiplication. Now, do you guys remember the difference between addition and multiplication, like learning about as a kid? Like it was so easy to do addition as a kid because we had fun games that helped you out. You remember Hi-Ho Cherio? Anybody play Hi-Ho Cherio? You're just like one, two. It's so much better than Candyland, which was like flip a card and move something. Anyway, um, some of you have collegiate versions of these games. I don't. But Hi-Ho Cherio was just a counting game to teach you how to move move the counting marker forward. And then you would add five. And so you would start to learn how to add. And then came multiplication. And sometime in, in your zone, you suddenly realize this doesn't make sense, right? One plus one is two. One plus two is three. And then it's one times one is one? That's utterly confusing because you're using sets and all these conversations. And look, multiplication has been confusing for the church as well. Addition makes sense. We say, yeah, we just, we just bring people to church. We invite people to church. We get people connected to the church. We, we help them hear from the pastor about Jesus. We go to a harvest crusade. We just do some addition. 
But multiplication is so much more difficult, so much harder to grasp, and such a, such a more powerful tool. It's exactly what the church did. Because God set them up for that. He said, you're going to go into all the nations. And so he prepped the church for multiplication on the day of Pentecost. And any church that's going to make a great impact, we're going to be the church that we've been founded to be, a church that is reaching the valley of Corona, reaching down through Temescal Valley. If we're going to go on that journey together, then we're going to have to see ourselves move from addition to multiplication as well. You say, well, okay, Greg, well, what in the world does this look like? Well, we find it in the book of Acts. And it starts again, like I said, that the church was prepared with this concept of multiplication. It was prepared because at Pentecost, Peter gets up and the apostles get up and they start preaching. And at Pentecost, you got to understand, it is a big festival that happened in Israel that you would come to Jerusalem with your first fruits to give to the temple. And the numbers in Israel would swell. It was the most popular uh, actual festival of the time period and it would swell to a million plus people in this small little city. So that the streets would be packed with humanity, all excited eating and drinking and celebrating together because it was a celebration. And so God comes in his presence and the spirit upon the church and these men and women get out and, and the apostles themselves start to preach the gospel. And all these people start hearing the gospel in their own languages. And it lists actually these languages out at the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter 2. And we get a few of them right here. But just to give you guys an illustration, if you want to look at verse actually 2-9, it begins even more. It starts off and it says, there were Parthians, now that's the empire next door, Medes, which is like modern-day Iran, uh, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, that's all of Iraq and Iran area, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, um, Pontus and Asia, that's all the Turkey with Phrygia and Pamphylia, and then you get Egypt, we all know where that one is, all right, thanks for the education. And so then we get into Cyrene. That's, a, that's actually a, an island. You have the visitors from Rome. You have Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. All of this is heard. Now, if you're not great with geography, I get it. But if I was to go back to the map that we looked at, what you're seeing is actually people from all of these various areas that are in one location. The entirety of the Roman Empire and beyond had gathered in one spot so that you and they would be prepared to explode and multiply in locations that they couldn't just add to. But that's not what they did immediately. They just hear the gospel and go, okay, we're going home. They stayed. They were discipled. They were trained by the apostles. And as this began to happen, you begin to read in Dr. Luke's account of the church history, called the book of Acts. What he begins to do is he begins to explain what God was doing. And here's what's interesting. Every time something great happens, like Pentecost, you would have this word occur. It's called added. Notice he says in verse 2, or verse 41, so those who received his word at Pentecost were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Instantaneously, 3,000 people in the church plus the 150. You have 3,150 people now worshiping Jesus. The movement has begun, but it was started with addition. Well, there'd be some more things that happen. Some more persecution begins to happen. The, uh, the leadership is, is kind of punished. And yet the next thing we know is they're still praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. In fact, it goes on to add again later. It says, eventually they added more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That word multitudes actually represents the word 10,000 to 10,000 and more. The, uh, the Romans didn't have a word for anything above 10,000. I'm like, yeah, it's called 10,001. But they didn't have any more than that. 
And so at that point, when you got above 10,000, they say it's a multitude. And when you had multitudes, you're, you're upwards beyond 10,000 people. Some estimates of, of historians have claimed by the end of the first century, there were well over 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem alone. Now, these people understood the power of the message. But yet what happened is it seems they didn't hear Jesus' call, right? Here they are adding to Jerusalem and adding to Jerusalem and adding to Jerusalem. And what did Jesus say to do? Go to Judea, then go to Samaria. And it's almost as if they said, now nah, we're good. We're comfy. We're, we're fine. This is great. Because they stayed in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem grew and Jerusalem swelled and Jerusalem continued to preach the God, had the gospel preached to it. But they didn't move. And so what's interesting is as it continues on, something had to be done. God didn't call it just to be in Jerusalem, so he began a, a situation. A leader had risen up in the church who was helping serve, and he starts preaching the gospel to certain synagogues. And these synagogues got so angry at him, they had him arrested. His name was Stephen. And he was pulled into the Sanhedrin, and he was, and he was condemned and stoned to death. And so they kill this man, and a persecution breaks out by a man named Saul. And this is what verse 8-1 says that that starts. So Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Suddenly what God had prepared at the beginning when he said, you're going to go out to all the nations. I'm going to save a bunch of people from the nations. We're going to hover around in Jerusalem as it adds. Now it's time for Boom, multiplication. The persecution hits. They spread out in all kinds of directions. And here's what's interesting. From this point on in the book of Acts, it's about how the gospel goes to Samaria and then spreads out into, into Turkey and how there's missionary movements that begins to start these, the church in all kinds of locations. What you begin to have is multiplication in the church, not simply addition to the church. Does it make sense? It was that exact multiplication factor that created the ability for the church to expand throughout the empire and throughout its territory until eventually there was a church known everywhere that there was a town. This is important because the only way to really reach a grand area is through multiplication. And I believe that the call at Olive Branch for our future is we've done the addition. We've done some adding. We've added a service. We had our Saturday night service. We've added to, uh, to the church. And we're not, you don't stop adding, but you need to move to multiplication. And we as personally need to think in terms of multiplication. In some interesting cases, individually, each of us can multiply. I mean, I've already done that. I have four children. I don't know about you, but I'm just kidding. A little different than that. But what I'm talking about is that multiplication occurs when we're able to take who we are and the faith that we have, and we're able to multiply it by bringing another disciple along. Who are you raising up? Who are you training? Who are you pouring your cup out into? Is there somebody that you know who is behind you on the faith journey that you can help move forward in and begin to train them and shape them? Maybe it's not so much that. Maybe it's an opportunity to multiply your small group. Do you know the fastest way to get more people in the small groups is not just to add to your small group, it's actually to have your small group multiply. Have a new one form, and more people have that opportunity. Maybe it's an opportunity to multiply yourself in leadership. Maybe you're leading something at your work, or you're leading something in your life, and now it's time, you know, you want that Christian faith to reside at your workplace, even when you're gone. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to multiply myself as a leader. I'm going to multiply myself in somebody else's life. So now there are two Christian leaders who are out there doing the, doing the work of God. There are two people out there giving and caring and sharing Christ wherever we go. That kind of living is a multiplication. But here's the thing. Multiplication isn't done because it's not easy. 
Addition is one thing. Multiplication is hard. Why is multiplication so difficult? Is because there are barriers to multiplication. There are barriers that we put up and we keep up. And, and it's, um, it's interesting when we start thinking about these barriers of multiplication. The Jewish people had their barriers. Trust me, they understood barriers. When you went to their temple, there was a barrier. In fact, the first barrier you saw, especially for most of us in this room, if we're not Jewish, was the barrier saying, stay out, you're not Jewish. And so the first barrier kept the Jewish, the Jewish people in and the non-Jewish people out. Once you were inside, ladies, you would find a barrier that said, ladies, you stay out. And you now found your barrier because only the men could go in further. When the Jewish men were in that area, then there was a barrier that said, hey, you guys who aren't priests, stay out. And then all the priests would come in. And only certain priests got to go inside the holy place because there was a barrier. And the holy of holies, which was the inner piece, only one man, the high priest, got to go there once a year. Otherwise, there was a barrier saying, stay out. And the Jewish people got barriers. And we can produce barriers the same way to the gospel. We can create barriers in our attitudes and in our thinking that, then, that stops multiplication. Thoughts that occur to us like, you know what? I'm just not ready to help anybody else grow in my faith. I just, I'm not far enough along. It's just, I'm not there. That's a barrier. It's a mental barrier. There are mental barriers that keep us from passing the gospel in our neighborhoods. You know, it's like, I don't know my neighbors. They don't really want this. They seem happy enough. Why don't they want to listen to me? Um, you know, maybe it's a barrier of attitude. Maybe it's a barrier we created because, hey, we've been jerks to our neighbors and they're not ready to listen to that. Maybe it's a racist barrier. Maybe there's something within us that sees that they're a different ethnicity or they're a different, they're from a different cultural background or maybe even a different color. And we're like, well, we didn't want to hang out with us. We couldn't do that. Or maybe you just don't want to. Maybe it's a different religion on your block. Maybe you have a Muslim or a Hindu that lives on your street and you're like, well, that'd be really uncomfortable. I don't know what they'd be like or a secular person. I don't know if they'd cuss around my kids or whatever. We produce barriers to the gospel all the time. And we keep people away from the gospel because, A, we're either afraid. Maybe it's that question that you know they're going to ask you, but you don't even know what question it is. So you really don't know how to answer the question that you've never been asked because you don't even know what that question is. You see how that works? We create our own mental oppositions and problems that create barriers of the gospel running. What I want you to do this morning is to honestly ask yourself, what barriers have you created? Is it a barrier where you feel like you're not good enough or you're too good? Is it a barrier of racism? Is it a barrier of some kind? What I would ask you to do is in somewhere today, write it down. Right now, where you're at, write it down. If you know what that barrier is, write it down because I want you to be praying over it. I want you to be thinking through it. I want you to be asking God to remove it from your life, from your thinking, and so you can identify what that barrier is so you know what you need to pass through, what you need to take down because we need to be taking down the barriers. And I get this from Paul. Paul was an apostle who had planted a church in a, this town called Corinth that was in Greece. And um, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. It was the Las Vegas of their time period. And so what's interesting about Corinth is that he, he writes to them all kinds of information. One of the things he says this as he, as he starts to tell them to overcome barriers. He goes, look, whether, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's like, you can eat in the temple, you can eat the food offered by idols, all this stuff. Just, it doesn't matter. Just whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, there's a qualifier, then he says. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He's saying, listen to me. The gospel has enough offense as it is. Think about it. Who likes to hear they're a sinner? Who wants to be told you are a moral failure in God's eyes because of that moral failure? You are sorry about it, but you have no way to make it right, and God's going to judge you. That's the beginning of the gospel. That is not a, that's not a happy start, is it? I think a lot of us are like, can we just get to the good side? You know, that Jesus loves us. He bore our sins on the cross, and he rose from the dead so we can be saved. But we don't have any feel of a need if we don't deliver the bad news without the good news. And unfortunately, we, we, the, the bad news is offensive. And Jesus is a rock of offense. There's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. That's offensive to people. It's offensive to be told that the things that you love and enjoy in your lifestyle or whatever it is can be, is sinful and that you've got to repent of that to follow Jesus and he'll shape you and change you. And re- that, that can be offensive. And so what happens is we want to remove all the other offenses so at least they can get to the gospel. And that's what he's saying. Don't give offense to Jews by eating the wrong thing in front of them. Don't invite your Muslim friend over and offer them pork. That's a bad idea. You know, think, think about it, but don't put an offense in front of them with your attitude. Don't put an offense in front of them by creating a boundary that's not necessary. Maybe speaking a language they don't understand, or maybe doing it in a way that, that doesn't actually preach the gospel, like, Jesus loves you. Well, thanks for being a sourpuss. I really want that. That's, that's not how it works. So he says, take down those offenses. Bring the barriers down. You know, I'm going to say this this works for you if you're a non-Christian as well. In fact, I would ask you to write down your barrier. What keeps you from considering what Christianity teaches? I mean, you're just so sure it's wrong, you could write the word impossible, untrue. But then I would ask you to do something. If you could identify the barrier that keeps you from considering and looking at Christianity— then I would ask you to begin to ask yourself a question. How much do you doubt your barrier is true? Do you give the same scrutiny you've given Christianity your own viewpoints? Have you been as critical about your atheism or as critical about your own religious perspective as you are of Christianity? If you haven't, you are not being honest. And you've created a barrier that's unnecessary. And I want to invite you to consider, maybe, to doubt your own beliefs just as much as you try to doubt the Christian faith. This is a challenge because we all need to take down barriers. And that's, my friends, not comfortable. When you deal with a barrier, the reason we don't take them down is they are extremely uncomfortable. Again, like I said, the Jewish people, they understood boundaries. Peter grew up as a Jewish man, met Jesus as a Jewish fisherman, started following Jesus, and became Saint Peter, right? We all know Saint Peter. Our Catholic friends say he founded the church in Rome. He is the, he is the, first, he is the top of the food chain on the, on, the, on the apostle chart. You know, he's the, he's the saint of all the saints. And yet here's the interesting thing about Peter. Peter wasn't always the most saintly kind of guy. In Dr. Luke's writings about, uh, about the church, Peter comes up in, chap, in a particular chapter, in chapter 10. He, he shows up quite often, but then here in 10 is a very interesting thing. He's out in this town called Joppa, which is like a seaside resort kind of town. He's in a tanner's house. He's up on the roof, and he's praying, and he's just seeking God and having his normal time with God, and God delivers something to him that is just different. A vision comes, and it says that this, he saw 
He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing the meal, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's un- that is common or unclean. And the voice of him came a second time. And what God has made clean, do not call common. And it shows him this three times. Now, if God's trying to get your attention, he shows you something three times, right? It's like, okay, this is obviously important. So he's like, what is it? And suddenly there's this knock on the door downstairs. And this servant goes down and opens this like, hello? He's like, yeah, we got three Gentile men, three non-Jewish men come up to the door. And they say, hey, this guy, our, our, our boss Cornelius has sent us. He says there's a guy named Peter here. Uh, we need to take him with us. And Peter comes down and is like, what's this? This is crazy. And he realizes I need to go with these guys, but they're not Jewish. And he's uncomfortable. Grabs a couple of his friends with him, probably a bodyguard or something, and they start marching for a few days down to Cornelius' house. When they finally get to Cornelius' house, they get there, and it's like he's announced, Peter's here, and these people come rushing up. They bow down. They start bowing down and worshiping. He's like, get up off your feet. Stop it. I'm just a human just like you guys. Cut it out, crazy Gentiles. And then he does something risky. You see, in the Jewish world, you didn't go into a non-Jewish home. You didn't go into the non-Jewish territories. In fact, Jesus, as far as we can tell, never entered into a, into a Gentile home. And so Peter is sitting there going, I don't know if this is good. I don't know if this is bad. But he's standing at the doorstep and says, then he stepped in. And he met the people. Then there was a large crowd waiting for him. And this is what he winds up saying. And he said to them, <clears throat> Well, you yourselves know um, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's a great intro, isn't it? Way to stick your foot in your mouth, Peter. Uh, you're all unclean and dirty, but I'm not allowed to say that anymore. So, um, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why would you send for me? Do you get the feeling Peter's nervous? Do you get the feeling Peter's uncomfortable? He's doing something his whole life he was taught was wrong. His whole life he was taught was sinful to go into the Gentiles' house. And now he's in. And he, begins to, he hears Cornelius' story of seeing an angel. He starts to preach the gospel, and the Spirit of God falls on these people. They begin to manifest the, the, in tongues that they've been saved. And suddenly... There's this amazing sense that Peter goes, oh my gosh, a barrier has been dropped. Where he had been trained, there was a barrier keeping the Jews and the Gentiles apart. It was gone. The gospel was for everyone. Jesus' gospel was saving everyone. And when he was willing to go through the discomfort of walking across the barrier, suddenly a new explosion of multiplication occurred as the Gentiles started to come to faith and they began to see that it was not just a Jewish thing. This was a worldwide thing. And it would take this barrier to fall so that Jesus' statement to the ends of the earth would happen. For us as Olive Branch, we got to understand something. If we're going to see multiplication happen, barriers have to fall, and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable for you to repent 
of racism. It's going to be uncomfortable to go to your neighbor and apologize for your bad attitude. It's going to be uncomfortable to step into a situation and invite people who you know don't live like you, whether they're a different religion or whether they're secular and you don't want your kids around people who cuss or whatever, and invite them into your home. The lifestyles are different and to care about them and love on them and share the message of Jesus with them will take discomfort if you're going to drop boundaries. And if we're going to multiply Multiplication requires dropping boundaries. And so here's the thing. There are other boundaries that are even larger than our personal ones. Boundaries that exist as we gather as a corporate body called Olive Branch. And they automatically appear. Boundaries that sometimes we don't even have much um, power over. I'll give you one of those boundaries. It's a big boundary, a very strong boundary. It's called traffic. Say what? Yes, traffic is a boundary in this town, like nobody's business. And it's done something pretty amazing to our church. Years ago, <laughs> we were really excited. As a church, we had purchased 14 acres. We were seeing record, record attendances in all of our services. We were just seeing people come to Christ. We were, it was just a really energetic time. There was some inner turmoil and other things that had begun to show up. And we started to work that stuff out. But we had purchased this 14 acres and we were sure, you know, we're going to go down there. We're going we're gonna to move the church down the valley. And so we started a campaign to, to raise the funds to get the church down the valley. And we're going to sell this place and we're going to build down there. We'll rent this place back out and all this stuff. And as we were talking about this and working through all these pieces and we launch out with a vision, 200 people said, oh, that's what we're doing? Sayonara. And they went away. I mean, you can imagine when one third of the church just goes, whoop, vanished. And we're sitting around going like, what just happened? And the, the discomfort of what occurred there was so clear. And it was eventually we were like, Is this, did we get this wrong? We're we supposed to sell the property? We're we supposed to use it for other things? And so as an elders retreat, we gathered together and we were praying at an elders retreat and discussing the property. Do we sell it? What do we do with this thing? Because it's not so sure or clear that we're supposed to go down. What do we do? And I was like, well, what, what happened? Why did this turn out this way? And was it the bad you know, I'm just a lousy salesman, which I am. But, you know, is this just how it works? And they're like, no, no. And two of our elders, one of our elders is very candid. He said, I just need to be honest with you. If you guys had moved down there, I wasn't coming. We were going to go find another church because we couldn't go with you. And two of the other elders were like, yeah, we were too. And these are elders, guys. These are people deeply committed to the church. And they were like, that's just a drive too far. Just a distance too far. And I'm like, wow. And it only got clearer when over the years we've done these get-to-know-you lunches and now we're doing our Meet the Family. Just last weekend upstairs to Meet the Family, it happened again. I just laughed when I heard it. I met some people from South Corona, and, our, and the South Corona people were like, yeah, where do you live? I live over here in South Corona. It's like, awesome. They're like, yeah, we tried out this church, and we tried out that church, and then we found Olive Branch. I'm like, huh, okay, I've heard that before. Then I met somebody from Timiskau Valley. They're like, oh, man, yeah, we, we were driving by the sign, and, we, and we, so we decided to finally check the church out. Hey, when are you guys moving? Those are two very different narratives. And something began to, to be very clear. In fact, let, let me just kind of see if this works. This has worked both the other services. This is a larger service, so it'll be a little bit, percentages will be a little different, but... Real quick, I'm going to start at Dos Lagos. So if we start with Dos Lagos and go south into the canyon in Elsinore, if that's where your house is and where you live, would you put your hand up real quick for me? Just throw it up high. Look around real quick. All right, so 
Now, if you live north, like sort of the crossings, if you're up in Cahalco, that's fine. If you live, you know, West Crown, just this way, that's a larger percentage. But raise your hand if your house is upwards in this direction. So what you're seeing is that in this service, about a fourth of us live in that canyon. In the other two services, it was half and half. See, God prepped Olive Branch like he prepped Pentecost. At Pentecost, he pulled all these people from all these other locations to prepare them for when he was going to spread them out to take the gospel in multiplication to various locations. In the same way, he's put two communities in one congregation. Two groups of people here. And you know what? There's a difference between South Corona and the, and the Valley. And maybe South Corona, I don't think, realizes as much as the Valley realizes this. If you're in South Corona, guys, you, you, the furthest you will go is Dos Lagos on $5 movie day. That's it, right? <laughs> Woo! You gotta love that. You're like, $5 movie day, going down the Valley. Arr, it's worth it. Otherwise, if you're, you're going to Home Depot, you're going to the Target, you're, he- you're headed over to, you, you, maybe you'll go to Eastville to hang out in some places. But guess what? If you live in the valley, we m- will try to go to the crossings. But if I'm going to go to Home Depot, because I live in the valley, I'm going to Elsinore. I'm going to Target in Elsinore because it's faster. I'm going to everything in Elsinore because it is officially now a different group. That, tra- that traffic has transformed the way they think in the valley. It's transformed the way they respond in the valley. It is two different groups. And what's funny is this response has been the same every service. The people in the valley go, amen, thank you. Oh, gosh. When are we going to build it, right? And then the other group says, well, what's the problem? And it's not a problem. It's a barrier. And it's an opportunity. See, one of the fun things that I know is as I've talked to my staff who live in the valley, they're having a hard time to invite people up here. But if you live in South Corona, it's been easier to gather people and invite them. If you're in Trilogy, there's kind of a gamble to get them up here. And, and there's these opportunities, but evangelism is hindered by traffic. Let me give you an example of how this works. Bill, I'm going to use you. And so what you're going to do, Bill, right now is I'm going to ask you to do a simple thing, and that is to tag somebody next to you and then stand. And then you can tag another person. And if you've been tagged, you can tag somebody and stand. So you're just going to keep tagging people and standing as you've been tagged. But you can keep tagging people until it spreads out. But here's the rule. You are not allowed to leave the distance of your seat. You can't lean out into the aisle. You can't lean out across. You're like, he got you. You know, like that. That's missionary work. We're not going to do that. So, okay. So just go ahead and tag somebody and just stand on up together. And then you can tag somebody else and just stand up and just keep tagging people. You can tag another one, Bill. You don't have to stop unless you really don't want to give the gospel away. Uh, You can tag somebody behind you too. That fits. Now, Everybody timing this for me? This is rolling. The gospel's moving. We're going to get there by the end of the first century. All right, we'll pause right there. Thank you, guys. Now sit down real quick. We're going to try this again. Bill, you're going to do it again. Oh, you are? Yeah, you're going to, you're going to do it again, but you're going to do it in your area. And then I'm going to see. It's kind of hard to see. Um, I'm pick on Amy. I'm going to Amy started this time. So, and then uh, over here, I'm going to Eric. You're going to start it, and then Tony, you're going to start it. So, um, here's what you're going to do. You're just going to same rules. Just go ahead and start it. Go ahead and do the thing. But watch the difference. Go ahead and tag somebody and stand. Tag somebody and stand. Eric, go ahead. Eric Coggins, you go ahead and do that. Tag somebody and stand. Eric's like on. He's like three people standing at the same time. He's like evangelism is his gift right there. 
Now, I want to show you something. We started with four different people. We multiplied the number. How much faster is this moving? Not to mention it's easier to explain the second time, but... <laughs> yes. Had I not multiplied the people, we never would have made it across the room. Because look, these gaps represent the boundaries. They may represent traffic. They may represent culture. This represents the opportunity to sit back down. So you can do that. Uh, But it represents boundaries of culture. There are 54% people who are Hispanic in Corona. Many of them speak Spanish primarily. That's a boundary line. Some people don't, don't, uh, don't resonate with the way that we do our music. Some people love the way we do our music. That's a boundary line. Some people have traffic that's blocking the way. That's a boundary line. Some people find that they just want somewhere near them, a community church. What if we were to put the community back in the community church? What if we were to be a place there and here? In fact, the answer to these boundaries is, is to not only are we prepared for this multiplication, but that God called us to something called multi-site. Now, multi-site is a confusing conversation, and I'm not here to detail it all out for you, but the idea is that God loves to work in, a, in an area beyond the boundaries. That if we just were to send a group down the canyon, and not just us, but the community down there form Olive Branch in Temescal Valley, and then you have all a branch in South Corona. Now you have an opportunity where all these boundaries that we're talking about are gone. But in the future, we were able to start a, a, a site or a, a location that spoke with that, that translated it into Spanish. What if we were able to start a service or a site that reached out into, into Norco or maybe West Corona? I mean, some people are traveling 15, 20 minutes across Corona to get to church. Some of you are coming down from Cajalco, down this long road that takes about 10 to 15 minutes sometimes to get down the road from Cajalco. These are opportunities of people, 200,000 plus surrounding us that otherwise aren't going to come travel through a bunch of traffic and a bunch of windy roads to come here. Let alone, here's a problem. We can't fit them all in this little box. But I don't want giant boxes because neither do you. One of the other things I hear all the time is, we like this church, it's little. Let's not be little. What you mean by that is you can see human beings in the room. You know, the standard in multi-site conversations is nobody ever needs to build a 3,000-seat auditorium ever again. Like the biggest it would ever be is about 800, about twice the size of this room, which enables you still to know your community, reach out, have plenty of room, have the opportunity to connect with people, and we have all of this available at an, an opportunity right now. And here's the thing. We could, we could wait around. We could just keep adding and adding. And I believe we will because our future is going to be greater than our past. We keep adding. But eventually God kicks the church when it doesn't do what he called him to do. Remember the persecution? That's what got them moving. I don't want to have to wait for that. I don't think we should have to wait around for God to kick us to get us moving when he's seeking people who want to obey him in faith and step out in faith to see God do something to do what we were planted to do, which is to reach the valley that surrounds us. And it's our responsibility, this olive branch, and our opportunity. And this multi-site is what you saw, is an ability to break, jump over the boundaries, and see the gospel go and grow. Because it gives them an opportunity to hear it in their area, in their way. Now, just as I said, boundaries in our personal lives are uncomfortable to overcome. They're uncomfortable in the corporate setting, too. And so I have to put it this way. I hate ending in a negative, but we need to be ready to be uncomfortable. And I don't really think it's that negative. Now, it's negative to us as Americans because, guys, let's face it, we're comfortable. 
those are some nice seats you're sitting in there. And you don't think I sometimes wish I was sitting there in some nice seats with you guys? I'm joking. But the point is that it's going to cause some discomfort to say goodbye to some of our community who are willing to go down there to make a difference in their community. It's going to make us uncomfortable knowing that now it's our responsibility to fill this service back up or another service back up with our brothers and sisters, our friends, our family, our loved ones, our neighbors, and our coworkers as they're doing it down there. It's going to make us uncomfortable as we make decisions about the ideas of, of leadership. You know, do, I, I, Maybe I need to be a leader and to step over that boundary into a leadership position. It might be uncomfortable to, to see something start like the hangout or to see something start like a small group and see yourself stepping into positions where you need to do this or, or break through your personal boundaries because you know it's aiding the gospel to grow in other places or maybe to disciple someone because you know these people can't just stay babies. We've got to see people grow up. We're going to talk about what that looks like next, next week in detail, all the pieces that we've, we're putting in place and have put in place so that we can see outreach and evangelism go. But what we're talking about today is this, that it, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable to step out and see the gospel multiply and to overcome barriers. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think Jesus saved us to be comfortable yet. This isn't our home. We're passing through, and we want to take as many people with us as we can. Amen? When Jesus came, you know, he showed up on a royal throne, riding a white horse, attendants serving him day in and oh. He showed up in a manger, dirty and dusty, grew up in a poor home, learned how to be a carpenter, showed up as a preacher, lived as an itinerant preacher in people's homes who are willing to give him hospitality, winds up preaching the message to the point that he takes on a whip to his back, nails in his hands and his feet, and dies a gruesome death to bear our sins. Our God did not come to be comfortable. He came to be uncomfortable because he crossed the bridge from comfort of heaven to the discomfort of the fallen earth so that we might come back to heaven. And he's called us to be like him. How much does that mean we have been saved to an opportunity to take on a little bit of discomfort for another person as Jesus took on ours that we may know them and see them forever and eternity. And the glory and the beauty of who they are and the calling and the intention that God had for them would be discovered and found because we were willing to just be a little uncomfortable. I get excited about that. This is our journey. This is where we're headed, that God would use this church as it was planted and intended to be a church that reaches the valleys. And the reason we bring this up now is because, yeah, all the details aren't laid into, aren't there yet. You're like, when are we going to do this? We hope, we hope maybe fall, we hope maybe next January. You know, we're praying through it. But here's what we do know. We want to be ready. Jesus taught us this. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock and say, This man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. You know, that kind of thing. I don't want to be the guy being made fun of like that. And so what we're asking you guys to do is ask great questions. Vision Vision does not reside in an individual It is guided by the leader, but it is found in the wisdom of people. If you have a thought, if you have a question, if you're curious about how this works, come talk to me, come talk to staff, come talk to elders. We'll answer your questions as best we can, but the best we can do is take your questions because we want to be able to answer them. And you might have an insight, you might have an idea, and you might have some wisdom that we otherwise hadn't considered or thought through. 
And by you bringing it forward allows us to be on this journey together and us to move forward together as we reach here in South Corona and all the way north and in Timiskau Valley and all the way south. And yeah, there's some discovery to do. Let's do it together because we want to be planned when we see what God does through us. I'm excited. I really do believe our future is going to be greater than our past. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our opportunity to be in just a little examination of the church and the movement that you began. And I ask right now that you would please, please, would you open our hearts up to our barriers that we have laid out? God, our personal ones that we have laid down before you, whatever they be. God, our, our corporate ones of the traffic, of culture, of language, of all the various things can, can hinder people from hearing and knowing you. God, we want to remove all the offenses that your rock of offense, Jesus, you yourself would be heard, that they might be saved. God, that they would have eternity with you, that they would not suffer hell. No one needs to suffer that anymore. God, move us and motivate us that we would be a little bit uncomfortable, that we'd be willing to do just a little bit of discomfort for the sake that someone would not have an eternal hell. Oh, Lord, we love these people. We love this city. We ask that you would allow that love to move to action now. Give us wisdom and give this congregation wisdom by your spirit, we pray. It is in Jesus' name, amen.